Hey, Jay, I've been watching Runaways, and I was wondering, is Molly a mutant or an inhuman? Well, in the show, Molly is heavily, heavily hinted to be inhuman. In the comics, though, she's definitely a mutant. Really? I thought they'd established that comics Molly's powers were somehow artificial, too. Kind of. Um, see, Molly's grandmother basically custom-built both of Molly's parents. Wait, Molly has a grandmother? Was she evil, too? More amoral than actively evil, but it did become an issue when she tried to mutate Gert. Why would she mutate Gert? Mostly because she could. She did say that she believed pretty strongly that everyone should have access to superpowers, but that struck me as more of a justification than a working ethos. So what stopped her? Well, Molly caught on to what her grandmother was up to, and she taught Gert to use music to hide her thoughts from the cats. The cats... Hold on, I should probably go get that. Hi, look, this really isn't a good time. We're in the middle of... Just a moment. Miles, they won't leave. What do I do? Who won't leave? And did you tell them we're recording? Carolers, and yes, of course I told them, but they aren't listening, and I'm not sure how hard I want to push. I mean, at least one of them definitely has claws. Okay, um... Okay, let me think, 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 think. Okay, okay, I've got an idea. Just a moment. All right, so, um, so here's the deal. They promise they're only going to sing between podcast segments as long as they can do one song just right now. Cool? Do we have a choice? We really don't. Hello. 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 <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jamies. Uh, hi, neighbor. Uh, we just moved in next door and I uh, thought we might uh, sing you a song. Uh, you know, I'm the best at what I do and part of what I do is uh, play guitar. All right, team, our mission is to bring the holiday spirit to a world that hates and fears us. In tune with me, my X-Men. On the first day of Christmas, my X-Men gave to me a world that hates and fears me. On the second day of Christmas, my X-Men gave to me two Maximoffs and a world that hates and fears me. On the third day of Christmas, the X-Men gave to me Three henchmen, two Maximoffs, and a world that hates and fears me. On the fourth day of Christmas, my X-Men gave to me Four flying steeds, three henchmen, two Maximoffs, and a world that hates and fears me. On the fifth day of Christmas, my X-Men gave to me five nasty boys! Beast, what are you doing here? Everybody, I come with a dire warning from the future. What? The future? Oh no, what's going on? No, no, no time to explain. It's better that I just take you there and show you. Brace yourselves, my X-Men! Oh, oh, this isn't another concentration camp, future! Okay, we're in the future. Hank, where's the problem? Okay, admittedly, there was no actual problem. This is just a really long song, and I have a lot of better things to do with my time. So, um, verse 12. One, two, three. On the twelfth day of Christmas, the X-Men gave to me... Twelve mini-series. Eleven resurrections. Ten toads a-leaping. Nine more likes milping. Eight dukes of Marrox. Seven splinter timelines. Six summers brothers. Five nasty boys. 
Two Maximums. Two Maximums. And the world Good work, my X-Men. I think this calls for another round of diplomas. So, anyway, where were we? Molly's grandmother... Um, the cats. Right, the cats. They were telepathic. That's creepy. Ah, uh, it's okay. Old Lace ate them. Old Lace is Gert's velociraptor, right? Gert's Deinonychus. Right, I always forget that Jurassic Park is full of lies. So, was that how Molly and Gert got away? Only after the rest of the runaways showed up and helped them defeat a clone of Molly's mom. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 229 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and welcome to, to our 2018 Giant Size Winter Special. And Jay, I am so excited to be doing another one of these. It's going to be full of so much good stuff. We're going to be talking about a truly wonderful comic series. We're going to be talking to a really cool person. We're going to be telling you who won the year in a variety of not entirely arbitrary categories. And also, we've apparently got carolers this year, so that's happening. Uh, speaking of which, they're getting kind of antsy. Guys, you mind just sort of hanging out for a bit while we cover some comics? Okay. So, as Miles mentioned, we are we are covering a miniseries today, and it's one of of both of our favorites. It is. This is a series that I've been excited to cover basically since we started the show. I remember we were talking about how excited we were to cover this very early on. Likewise, very much. But before we get to that, because of the nature of this series, we're going to have to do something that has become over time one of our specialties, and that is to recap about 31 years worth of gray summer's nonsense. All right, how fast do you think we can do this, Jay? I think that we should probably shoot for comprehensible over fast. I can go pretty fast, though. So we're going to skip the Silver Age because that's basically a lot of back and forth will they, won't they? and jump straight to mid-Claremont era, where Jean appeared to sacrifice herself while landing a space shuttle, then emerged alive from the water as the Phoenix with a new codename and costume and ramped up powers. Then she died again. While Jean was dead, Scott met and married a woman named Madeline Pryor, who had a lot of things apparently coincidentally in common with Jean, and Scott and Madeline had a son named Nathan, after which their marriage began to fall apart. Meanwhile, Rachel Summers, Scott and Jean's daughter from the future of a divergent timeline, showed up in the present, joined the X-Men, claimed the Phoenix Force, briefly tried to destroy the universe, got stabbed by Wolverine, took a short sabbatical in the Mojoverse, and then joined British super team Excalibur. The Fantastic Four discovered Jean alive in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. It turned out the Phoenix Force had left her there to heal from her injuries while filling in for her to the extent that it eventually believed itself to be her and had sacrificed its own life accordingly. Scott and Madeline split acrimoniously. Scott headed to Washington, D.C. to join the newly forming X-Factor, and Madeline and baby Nathan promptly disappeared. When Scott went to try to find Madeline and Nathan back in Alaska, there was no record or trace of their existence, but local police found a body that Scott was able to identify as Madeline's. Nathan remained missing. As this was all happening, the X-Men found Madeline in California, where she had been shot and left for dead. There was still no trace of baby Nathan. 
Later in Dallas, Madeline and the X-Men apparently sacrificed themselves to save the world, at which point she pled on national TV for Scott to find their kid, which confused the hell out of everybody. Instead of dying, the X-Men and Madeline actually went to Australia, where Madeline ran X-Men Communications. The rest of the team was unaware that she had entered a deal with the demon Nastier, and was at this point extremely evil. They were also unaware that she had hooked up with Alex, Scott's younger brother, which is mostly tangential to this, but which I'm including because, you know, summer's nonsense. Scott and Jean eventually tracked baby Nathan to the same creepy orphanage where Scott had grown up, which turned out to be a front for all sorts of nasty science. But before they could rescue baby Nathan, he was kidnapped by demons. Those demons turned out to be working for Madeline, who was now going by the name Goblin Queen, and planned to sacrifice Nathan in an attempt to basically open a portal to hell. The combined X-teams vanquished Madeline, and Jean reconnected with the Shard of the Phoenix Force that Madeline had had. Also, the mastermind behind all of this was finally revealed, a weirdo named Mr. Sinister who had been manipulating Scott and Alex for most of their lives, and who had cloned Madeline from Jean after Jean had apparently died to ensure that Nathan would be born. Jean and Scott took custody of baby Nathan, and they all lived happily for a while, at least. At least until Apocalypse kidnapped Nathan and infected the baby with a techno-organic virus, which was rapidly killing him until a mysterious woman showed up and offered to take Nathan to the distant future where he could be cured. With no other choice, Scott let his child go. Meanwhile, two very large men named Cable and Strife showed up. Both were time travelers from the future with some connection to Scott and Jean, and it quickly became clear that one of them was probably a far-future version of Nathan, and the other his clone. Shortly thereafter, it was finally revealed that Cable was, in fact, the real Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, but when he had been taken to the future, it wasn't clear if he'd survived the techno-organic virus. So the Ascani Sisterhood, led by an elderly Rachel Summers after she was shunted 2,000 years in the future while trying to save a friend, made an emergency backup clone. Future Apocalypse kidnapped and raised that clone, believing it to be the actual Nathan Christopher. And, after three years of will-they-won't-they they back in the present, Scott and Jean got married and headed off on their honeymoon. Also in the aftermath of their wedding, Rachel dived into the time stream so that Captain Britain could come back. That's important, too, and that brings us to the first issue of The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. That's right, we are covering The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, a lovely miniseries from slightly farther along in continuity than the podcast is, but we could not resist the chance to cover this series in loving depth in a loving winter special. Yeah, I mean, part of part of the 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 privilege of, of being our own show is that we get to make these choices for ourselves, and I feel like the winter specials have always been about stories that were really close to our hearts. And man, this is this is one of the best. It really is. And honestly, the only stuff that's relevant to it, we basically covered in that previously on. We have Cable 6 through 8, where we learned that Cable's the original Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, not Strife. We have Excalibur number 75, the one we mentioned where Rachel gets shunted into the future. And we have X-Men number 30, where Scott and Jean get married, and Jean reconciles with Rachel. All of those things happen. We'll totally cover those. But today, we are going to be spending most of our time freaking two millennia in the future. Where the party is. Wait, no. No, there are no good parties in this future. I kind of feel like in a dark future you have to party extra hard to make up for how dark the future is. I mean, I don't know about you, but in like 2017 and 2018, I've been to some of the best parties of my life. I mean, we, we do see some pretty intense parties in this, but I would argue that they're not necessarily good parties. That may be true. That may be true. 
Well, this party was created by a few individuals. Namely, the party was written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Gene Ha, inked by Al Vey, and colored by Kevin Summers. And we've seen a lot of Scott Lobdell's work already. He's one of the main architects of the X-Line in the 90s. But Gene freaking Ha, Jay. Gene Ha is amazing. I feel like we should establish very quickly because you're only getting the pronunciations and not the text that Kevin Summers' last name is spelled S-O-M-E-R-S, and therefore we can probably safely assume that that he is distinct from all of that genealogical mess we covered earlier. Well, I don't know, Jay. I mean, we sell a freaking t-shirt. He's probably a Summers brother. But Miles, who isn't? Exactly my point. So, this issue starts by reinforcing one of the fundamental truths we have learned about Scott Summers, which is that he cannot take a vacation to save his or anyone else's life. And as is so often the case, the narration delights in telling us how bad life sucks for Scott Summers, and by extension, Jean Grey. A moment ago, she could feel the delicious warmth of the tropical sun on her skin. She could smell the salt water that surrounded her on every side. Now, all she feels is the dry, searing heat of a roaring inferno. A moment ago, she had closed her eyes in paradise, only to open them in hell. Jean has woken up in a vast, explosion-torn battlefield of shining, almost organically curved steel. There are these massive, shattered structures with the occasional burning corpse strewn about. And Jean Ha, that's Jean Ha, not Jean Grey, Jean Ha's art is perfect for this. The art is realistic, like almost too realistic. The way Jean Grey is drawn, she has almost art model musculature underneath her tight bodysuit. She has this really serious and stunned expression. The technology all around is just precise and battle damaged. And what I like about the art style for this series and for this scene in particular is the hyper-realism. I mean, hyper-realism for a comic book anyway, for a superhero comic book makes it clear that while this is a surreal set of circumstances, it is completely real. This is not a hoax, not an imaginary story, not a dream. This is Jean Grey waking up in horrible fucking circumstances in a horrible fucking world, having no idea why, but knowing immediately that, no, this is happening, this is real, and she needs to deal with it. Does Ha's art remind you at all of Barry Windsor Smith's? It does, yeah. I mean, Winter Smith has almost a, a slightly dreamlike quality. Like, his art is realistic, but everything is just so perfect and soft. Jean Ha is like if you took that art style and just made it a little bit harder, a little bit more sharply defined. I'm thinking mostly of the textures and the faces here, and also the, the backgrounds. Um, I don't know how much of the, the line quality and specifically the rendering is Ha and how much of it is, is Inker Alve, but... Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. There's, there's, and 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 Summers is is pulling in a really tremendously Mobius inflected palette for it that also works really well. The other thing Gene Ha has going for him that's going to be really critical in this story. You know, you mentioned that almost perfect musculature, and here's the thing: it's not '90s musculature. It's musculature with fabric drawn over it. Gene Ha is incredibly good at drawing fabric folds and texture, and that is going to serve him terrifically well over the course of the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Absolutely. Just that level of realism, because it's critical in a story like this that the readers be invested, that the readers you know, believe that this is a story with real stakes because things work in a real fashion. Well, and this isn't a superhero story, and if you tried to do this story in shiny, you know, 
exaggerated superhero-styled art, it would fall really flat. Totally agreed. But Jean Grey is not the only person to wake up in this awful, awful place, half-strapped into some weird kind of machine. She quickly sees that Scott is there too, but he doesn't look exactly like Scott. And Jean doesn't look exactly like Jean. And as they quickly realize, as she helps rescue him, they don't have their mutant powers. They're in different bodies, and they seem to be human. What they do still have are their minds, whole and intact. And with those minds comes a power that apparently can persist even without, you know, active mutations. And that is their psychic rapport. Huey Lewis would have a lot to say about this, I gotta say. But I like the way it's done, because we see those little telepathy bubbles, you know, thought bubbles with the weird little lines in the corners that for some reason signify telepathy. And Scots are blue, and jeans are yellow, and it just makes it so very clear. They don't have to keep calling each other by name in that very comic booky fashion. They can just talk in their voices, and the visual language of this comic makes it quite easy to follow. Those voices and those dialogue are terrifically naturalistic here. Yeah, I've talked about Lobdell to a great extent being kind of poor man's Claremont as 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 he goes forward, just sort of trying to pick up other other people's voices and narration. And on one hand, I think this is a series that owes a phenomenal amount to Claremont's narration and voice, especially in issues like X-Men 137. But on the other hand, this is this is the point where we see him, you know, really coming into his own as a distinct writer. And this is this is also one of those times where it's I have really I mixed feelings about this comic. I've talked before about Lobdell's history of, of harassment in the comics industry. A lot of that is public record. And it's really frustrating to love this book and to really love the writing in it as much as I do. And at the same time, feel like I really can't give it an unqualified recommendation. I totally hear you, dude. I totally hear you. We find out from the narration that this wreckage all around is actually the just-destroyed Ascani Cloisters, and it's composed of that soaring, curved, detailed tech that's been our vision of Apocalypse's future pretty much from the start, from every time we've seen it. And as this narration narrates below, there's this cosmopolitan global mishmash of people just going about their daily future lives. This world looks so lived in. Like, it's bizarre science fiction, but it's the kind of thing where you you just get the impression that every little person, every building, everything's got a story. Like, we're going to focus on Scott and Jean and soon Nathan, but this is a whole world. It's got that kind of Mobius texture and sense of bustling metropolis. And also, I think in a lot of ways, it's a very... Mobius style future landscape with the the curved edifices and just there's the very very tall very very multi-layered but very kind of almost teardrop shaped buildings I should say when we talk about apocalypse and when we talk about apocalypse's technology what it looks like and how it's represented is so so much a product of of every individual artist who draws it and Ha's version of it is incredibly organic looking it's great, yeah, and it seems like something that might come from a full 2,000 years in the future. This is no near-future Bishop's timeline. This is no Days of Future Past. This is 2,000 freaking years. What 2,000 years in the future has is Apocalypse and also his soldiers who show up in the cloister ruins to hunt down survivors to make an example of them uh, so that anybody who might rebel against Apocalypse the way the Ascani did— well, maybe think twice. And I love the look of these guys. It's something like a cross between Mass Effect Warhammer 40k and, like, high fashion haute couture. Like, the design work is just so cool and weird. I think it's got a little bit of Mad Max thrown in there, too. Yeah, a little bit of that. I would agree. 
But thankfully, before Scott and Jean can be murdered by these high-fashion space marines, they're saved by somebody kind of unexpected, a very, very old Rachel Summers. She's all wrinkles with short gray hair and a long rat tail like when she was a young superhero, and this gigantic robe that she's almost drowning in. It makes her look very tiny and withered and old. She is, however, still tremendously powerful, even if she's lost some of her control. Um, She can't just stop the Apocalypse soldiers. She basically has to blow them up. Yeah, and that works pretty well until a new character, Prelate Chavere, that's C-H apostrophe V-A-Y-R-E, shows up. He's got a similar style, but he's got a hairstyle that's sort of like if you're really leaned into the hair plugs look. Also, he's got skulls on his belt, which I guess is a thing you do when you're a badass in the future. And Chavere has some words for Rachel Summers, for a person we soon find out is the leader of the Ascani Sisterhood. Chavere also, in doing so, gives us a bit of background. Um, Clan Ascani has apparently catered to humans and even synthetics along with mutants. They have tried to maintain some hope for equality, some hope for upsetting the existing social status quo. Because this is a future where mutants rule everybody, and not just mutants, but specifically the most powerful mutants. It is, after all, a future run by Apocalypse, and that's sort of his deal. Our trio of heroes escapes into the sewers, and it's really freaky. I mean, there's blood pouring down from all the pipes from the massacre above. There's so much, in fact, that Scott's first assumption is that the Citadel, which whose technology he doesn't recognize, is somehow techno-organic, might itself be alive. But no, it's just that that many people have been killed a story above them. <sighs> Worst honeymoon ever already. Rachel gives Scott and Jean a little bit of context, so apparently Clan Ascani laid down their lives. The Ascani Sisterhood basically died partially from Apocalypse's soldiers and partially from the process that brought Scott and Jean here. Rachel, though, still talks to Scott and Jean like they're her folks, because to her, they are. I'm sorry. I would have asked first, but you being my parents and all, I didn't think you'd mind. God, this is so poignant, and it's also the second time that Scott and Jean have had an old child. Old Rachel explains, after she jumped into the time stream back in Excalibur number 75 to save a friend, she found herself in the future, in this future where Apocalypse had taken over and basically instated a new order where the strongest mutants ruled over everybody, and everybody else was just sort of around or wiped out for no reason or whatever. And that was almost 100 years ago. Rachel is super old. And in this future, Rachel started Clan Ascani. It translates, the, the, the name of Ascani translates roughly to family of outsiders, the closest name she could come up with to X-Men, which... I really love. Oh, again, super poignant. And yeah, that works fucking perfectly. Also gender neutral, which X-Men never quite managed. Yes, well done. Uh, A little bit less zippy, though, I gotta say. In this dark future, Apocalypse have been taking new bodies more and more frequently, basically burning through them. Because Apocalypse is immortal, but his body isn't. And he's been waiting for the perfect vessel to transfer himself into, that being Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. Now, that's what the soldiers here are after, and they think they've achieved their goal because they've managed to get Strife, or, well, the kid, the the child who will soon be known as Strife. They don't realize he's a clone. They assume that he's the original. 
And in fact, strife only exists, as we mentioned before, because when young Nathan Christopher got brought into the future, as it turns out, at the orders of Rachel Summers to save him from Apocalypse, sort of worked, Nathan was super screwed up, so she authorized an emergency backup clone being made, and sure enough, that's the one Apocalypse's soldiers successfully grabbed. And Scott and Jean have been brought here into the, the future by Rachel and by the lives of the Ascani in hopes that they'll be able to keep Nathan safe for long enough for him to grow up and take down Apocalypse. Now, they specifically, and, and Jean remembers this, that they were playing in the ocean when they got pulled in. So for all they know, their actual bodies are, are drowning right now. And... Maybe that means that this not-a-dream, not-an-imaginary-story world is all they have. Maybe they can never go back. And I really love that there's that sort of threat of permanence hanging over the whole series. And the Marvel Universe was selling it at the time. Scott and Jean were not in any X-Books for the four months during which this series was coming out. That threat and their subsequent degree of commitment to this world and this life carry through really, really well. Totally. So Rachel, after letting Scott and Jean know that, you know, the actual Nathan Christopher seems to have disappeared as well, probably been kidnapped, she uses the last bit of the power inside her, the last bit of her mutant powers and the Phoenix Force to give Scott and Jean as much as she can of their own original mutant powers. And then she passes out, leaving Jean to ruminate on where they've been stranded. The Professor... Aurora, Warren, everyone we ever knew, ever loved, is gone. We've spent years risking our lives for a world that feared us because of what we were. Not a lot of fun, no, but at least it was our world, Scott. Our lives. But we're so far into the future, we might as well be on another planet entirely. You're forgetting one thing that hasn't changed, Jean. Our love for each other. Any world with that much going for it is worth fighting for. Fuck yeah, Gene and Scott. They don't have too much time to be romantic, though, because Chevere, he of the fancy future hair plugs, shows up holding a baby and offers to trade that baby for Mother Ascani, for Rachel Summers. That hardly seems fair. She's at least as big as, like, eight to ten babies. Seriously. But this baby is, in fact, Nathan Christopher, and God, as, as the panel zooms in on him, you can see just how much impact the techno-organic virus has already had. He's reshaped. There are just metal and tubes and wires melding gruesomely with his flesh, but he's still got this look of innocence to him. He doesn't understand that there's anything wrong with this, and, man, compassion just goes to 11 as soon as you look at this kid. In addition to his ability to make techno-organics look really, really cool, Gene Ha brings something to a representation of a young cable that we have never before seen, and that is the ability to draw believable babies and children. Yeah, what's up with that? It's bizarre. Right, so, so Cable apparently didn't actually look like a weird medieval baby. Well, that's probably for the best. Well, Scott and Jean aren't just going to trade one kid for another, because that would suck. So even though their new powers are barely controllable at this point, they do snatch the kid away. And then they just run away, and Scott suggests, quite wisely, that Jean flood the place to cover their escape. And with marriage vows newly in their minds, Jean responds, I knew there was a reason I agreed to obey you. But you didn't agree to obey me. You specifically had it written out of the marriage vows. True. But that was for another reason entirely. Jean, please, not in front of the children. 
I love it. I love it because, yes, this baby with robot parts and this old lady who's run a cult in the future, those are their kids because X-Men. I mean, I assume that Rachel, at least by virtue of having had a vaguely out-of-control telepathy at various points, knows way more than she wants to know about this. But for all of you reading along at home and wondering, yeah, that power dynamic is canon. (laughs) Makes sense. Well, they do make it through the flood, all four of them, and wash up somewhere, for the moment, safe. And the baby, superpowered as he is, has managed to sleep through the entire thing. I feel like that's a skill Cable would have kept through adulthood. If you're a soldier, you gotta be able to sleep anywhere. Yeah, I, I do you think he, does he sleep as an adult? I sort of assumed that he just sort of doesn't. Maybe he trances like an elf in D&D, you know, with like glow sticks and stuff. That seems plausible. That brings us to the second issue of The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, Tenure. And this has the same creative team with the addition of Terry Austin as a co-anchor. We're going to be jumping a few years forward with every issue. So this one begins about five years after Scott and Jean first arrived in the future. And this time jump works really well, and, and as does every subsequent one, because of how fleshed out the world and relationships are and how much has clearly happened into, in the intervening years. Miles, you talked about Jean Ha's art as very clearly indicating just an incredibly textured world and a lot outside of even what we can see. And... That's true in every aspect of the story. The visuals are definitely a huge part of it, but the sense that, yeah, five years have passed, and these are these characters after five years of life and experiences and all of that stuff. So at this point, one of the things that's happened in that five-year period is that Scott and Jean are now going by the names Slim and Red Dayspring, and yes, even though you can't hear it, those names are both stylishly misspelled. So see, even though I used to spell my name M-Y-L-Z when I was a teenager, I was not the only person to do stuff like that. And Scott and Jean are cool, and so therefore I was cool. Because Apocalypse has mandated that only mutants who pass specific gene scans proving them to be worthy are allowed to procreate, Scott and Jean have nominally adopted Nate, who also doesn't know that they're his real parents. He thinks that he was abandoned by his real parents, and he specifically thinks he was abandoned because of the techno-organic virus. Whether that's something that Scott and Jean told him or something he just sort of concluded or decided on his own is never fleshed out, and I really hope it's the latter because goddamn... Yeah, seriously, dude's been through enough. So the chapter is kind of framed around Slim and Red and Nate Dayspring returning to what is ostensibly their hometown, because in this dark future, every 10 years, baseline humans and even low-powered mutants have to return to their places of birth for mandatory gene scans. And this is just so freaking biblical. I mean... That's kind of a thing with the whole Mary Joseph story, and even the first page of this comic really resembles one of the iconic images of Joseph and Mary and sometimes Jesus on a mule traveling. Like, Jean's even wearing a blue shawl. I mean, it is right there. So much symbolism. All right, so if we're going with with biblical analogs— trying to think, obviously, Cable is—Cable's, you know, the Messiah. Cable is is Jesus in this metaphor, which I guess— would have to make Jean Joseph because she's the stand-in parent. And Scott Mary, and Madeline, I guess, is God here. This is getting very quickly confusing, and we haven't even gotten to the three wise men. I mean, clones, probably? I don't know. Well, anyway, back in the less allegorical part of the comic... Wait, is there a strife equivalent in the Bible? Does Jesus have an evil twin? I don't know. I I grew up mostly Jewish, so maybe? 
Um, obviously, I need to be listening to more Apocrypals. Anyway. Anyway, okay, um, so we also get our first glimpses of the world around them. It's hostile, it's paranoid, it's post, well, mid-apocalyptic, and humanity is either itinerant or broken into small settlements, um, and either way, very, very, very much at the, at the mercy of Apocalypse's troops. But that's in stark contrast to the Dayspring family. Yeah, this is Unit Dayspring specifically, and they are very close-knit and very much a family, and in some ways, this is the closest and happiest these three are ever going to be, and the closest that they're ever really going to come to existing as a family. I know, God. It every time I see one of the Summerses or Greys go through shit in later comics, like I really love that we have this as a touchstone to a time when circumstances were still terrible, but at least this was very right. And I mentioned the time jump and how well the comic sells it. One of the things that really, really makes that effective is how f- is is that that the Daysprings are familiar enough with the world and with their lives that even the problems they have, Apocalypse's mandates, their own status as low-caste humans, Nate's techno-organic virus, the fact that Scott completely destroyed one of his knees when they first got there, they talk about with almost warm familiarity. And just the world itself has such texture. Um, one of the things I really like is that as they meet fellow travelers, they use the phrase good journey, like good journey, but with an apostrophe, uh, as sort of a hello and a goodbye. Like there are just these little bits of slang and culture that have developed, this camaraderie that's developed or rivalries that have developed between different groups of people. And I love it. I also just like the phrase good journey and we should start using that. Yeah, I was about to say, can we, can we just start adopting that as a general greeting? I say yes. All right. Um, so after a few good journeys on the road, the Daysprings arrive at Coastcrest, where they're immediately attacked by guards, but quickly rescued by a very rad cyborg fellow named Prior Turin. And both the city and the dude look amazing. Coastcrest is just this massive empire of gunmetal, like futuristic functionality made city. And Prior Turin... He's sort of a gruesome-looking cyborg. He's not like a fancy Cable or Terminator-looking one. No, he's almost merged with this, not even wheelchair, sort of hover-metallic something, and his flesh is almost melting into it. It's almost like a little link to baby Nathan Christopher's techno-organic virus. Yeah. One of the things I love most about Turin's design is he's a cyborg in ways that aren't meant to replicate human form. Exactly, yeah. And so he manages to be both a symbol of what Nathan Christopher has to fear if the techno-organic virus gets out of hand again, because at this point we see young Nathan with, you know, a robot arm and some robot parts in his face, but mostly looking normal. But Turin is also a reminder that it's actually kind of okay and you don't stop being a person just because your illness or your disability or whatever is more noticeable. Yeah, um... Now, Turin is also a convicted anarchist, but he wields a huge amount of unofficial power in Coastcrest, enough to get the guards to leave Unit Dayspring alone, and also to get them to take out the other, the only other witness, um, who is a human who had tried to turn in Unit Dayspring for speaking Old English, which apparently is a cause for suspicion because it's the language that was spoken by the Ascani. And this is Old English to the folks living 2,000 years in the future. They're not, they're not kicking at Chaucerian. And I really love that whenever Scott and Jean are speaking Old English, which is to say our modern or, well, at least 90s English, it's done in little brackets like it's a foreign language because in this world it is a foreign language. Yeah, that's a really nice touch. 
Now, Turin has been in contact with the Dayspring's indirectly, and there's a package waiting for them. That is going to turn out to be the comatose body of Rachel Summers, of Mother Ascani. But meanwhile, in Castle Apocalypse... Everything is orgies and Louis XIV decadence. And we see the current version of Apocalypse, because remember, Apocalypse has been changing bodies quite frequently... At this point, it's this withered old man in this wonderful futuristic apocalypse tech mech suit surrounding him. He's just sort of sitting in the chest. And there are these traditional, uh, like, early X-Factor era apocalypse heads just sort of hovering to either side in front of him. At this point, Apocalypse isn't even trying to pretend that that's his real body because he wields so much power. He doesn't need to. Also wielding more and more power is a very young Strife, who is quickly growing up into an absolute terror. We meet him for the first time immediately after he has incinerated his latest tutor, and Strife is being being raised by Chevert. This is the, the prelate we met um, initially, from whom Scott and Jean and Rachel and Nathan fled, and Chevert has taken on raising this terrible child basically as penance for letting, letting that group of, of Ascani escape. And we find out here that Strife is straight up being groomed as a new body for Apocalypse, and this includes Apocalypse accelerating the development of Strife's mutant powers. That brings us a further three years into this future with The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix number three, Through the Years. This issue has the same creative team, but our inking Katamari has this time brought in additional, additional to Alvey, Mark Pennington, and Joe Rubenstein. And still also Terry Austin, who came on with issue two. So... Jean, in her guise of Red, and a few years later, is working really hard to tutor Nathan and his telekinesis into using that telekinesis to pull back his infection, partially to keep himself okay, and partially to mask him from anybody who might get suspicious. But he's frustrated by all of this. Yeah, I mean, this is an eight-year-old who is has been living on the run his entire life and is being told, you know, and is, is, is being taught to use powers he can barely use, he can barely access or control, just to survive. He's got a ton of responsibility. It's way too much for a kid his age. And he's really, really frustrated. Um, To which Gene responds, Come here, Nathan, and listen closely. No matter what happens to you in your life, the way you look, the choices you get called on to make, the times you feel so alone, you're sure you're the only person who has felt the way you feel at the moment. Know that you're not a freak. Always know that there are people who care for you, who believe in you, who love you. Today, tomorrow, and yesterday. Oh, that's such a good callback. Right, to Scott's today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of my life when Jean proposed to him. Yeah, yeah. And with the time jumps, one of the things that we see in, in Ha's artwork, is that he does an incredibly good job of aging up not only Nathan as he grows, but the characters around him. So Turin and also Gene and Scott, like one of the things that becomes increasingly clear is that not only are their, their bodies aging in ways that people just don't age in comics, but also this is a world that's really hard on people. Yeah. And so I really love, I don't read enough of them, but I really love sort of family dynastic novels. <laughs> and 
this is sort of the Marvel equivalent because, yeah, you're right. You don't get to see that passage of time for adults in superhero comics. Like once you're an adult, you're basically an adult and you're going to stay in your 20s to 30s for the rest of your life, pretty much. Yeah. And what Ha has here is a is a finite and specific period of time passing with bodies that are basically going to be disposable to continuity. These these two bodies are going to functionally cease to exist when Scott and Jean pop back into their 616 bodies, which means that he can actually draw the passage and impact of time in ways artists very rarely get to with with um the returning characters. And another character who's getting older is Young Strife, who's also getting increasingly horrible he's we see him at citadel apocalypse using his powers on just some random freaking human and apocalypse even older 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 is sort of proud because what he wants is for strife to become more powerful and apocalypse is just using strife that is very clear to the reader maybe it's clear to strife maybe it's not i don't know strife comes across as the kid who wants to prove how awesome he is and live up to his scary robot dad's expectations. And Chevert is really, really not into this. The more time he spends with Strife and the more time he spends around Apocalypse discussing Strife, the more horrified he is at the entire situation. Apocalypse doesn't give a shit, though. I mean, he just wants a new host. In fact, that's why he, so many years in the past, infected Nathan Christopher with the techno-organic virus. This was to see whether baby Nathan was strong enough to be Apocalypse's new vessel. And Apocalypse assumes that baby Nathan was strong enough, you know, not only to survive the techno-organic virus, but to entirely shake it because the kid he's got is virus-free. Chevere, on the other hand, remembers the other baby, the one who got away the one who had clearly visible techno-organic infections. So that's a thing. But back at the home front, Jean stops Scott before Scott heads out on another rebel raid because Scott and Jean, Slim and Red, have been working with Prior Turin to make the dark future a little less dark. Jean points out, though, that Nathan's having a really hard time feelings-wise right now, and Scott has been sort of an absentee dad lately with all the work he's been doing. And Scott really reconsiders this. This is something, this is one of those complaints that gets brought up about Scott a lot of the time, and that he never really quite had a chance to actually address in the 616, but here, one of the things I really appreciate is that Gene calls him out on it, and he thinks about it, and he very clearly, over the course of this this issue and in the jump between this and the next one, course, course corrects. And that's something I've always loved about Scott Summers, is that he fucks up a lot, but when he realizes he's fucked up, he tries to fix it. And he sure does here. Now, Nathan is spying on this meeting from from a tree. He doesn't overhear the conversation about himself, but he does realize that his parents are super badass parts of the super badass rebellion, and he's very, very excited about that. He's a little less excited about the fact that Scott and Jean are constantly making out, because remember, this is still technically their honeymoon. And one of them actually makes an endless honeymoon joke here, which which I, I really appreciate. Actually, he's not the only one. I, I think Turin gets on their case about it, too, at one point. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So the raid on the bad guys does indeed commence. It's Scott and Jean and Turin and a couple of generic dudes, and then... A stereotypical Mongol warrior with green skin and a synthcon, like a robot, that's just basically a metal skeleton with no lower jaw, which really reminds me of those delightful old PlayStation medieval games. 
I want to be part of this revolution. This revolution is awesome. What's less awesome is what they find in the factory they're attacking. They find computers that are busy constructing a molecular model of something that Scott and Jean recognize. It's the legacy virus. That's right, because remember, Strife brought the legacy virus from his past, which is even farther into the future than we are right now in this miniseries. The legacy virus is still being developed right now in preparation for being sent back in time a little while later to kill a whole, whole, whole bunch of people. But there's no time to deal with the legacy virus because Apocalypse's troops attack. Um, Chevere is there, Strife is there, and they've got a, a legion of soldiers with them. And... For the first time in their role in the Rebellion, Scott and Jean reveal that they're mutants. They reveal the, their powers. Until now, everyone they've been fighting alongside and Nathan have assumed that they were baseline humans. And their allies can't believe that mutants are actually helping them. What reason would mutants have to help humans in this future where that just doesn't fucking happen? Well, it all goes back to a thing called Xavier's Dream. Now, Scott and Jean effectively managed to, to communicate, yeah, not all mutants are with Apocalypse. Look, we're all fighting. We've been on your side for a while. Can we just keep on, you know, struggling for our lives here at least till we get back outside? While all this is going on, Nathan Christopher has tagged along. He's been hiding in the background watching this raid. And suddenly, a voice in his head gives him some advice on messing with the computers around here, the computers that the rebels are trying to sabotage. Who could this mysterious voice possibly be? Well, there will be time to figure that out later, because right now, young Strife just happens to find young Cable. And Strife is furious that they seem to be having the same thoughts. They seem to look the same, except for the techno-organic differences. It's not possible! There is only one Strife, one heir to the throne of Apocalypse. There is only one Chaos Bringer. Uh, to which young Nathan replies, Truth Strife? Being the Chaos Bringer was never one of my life goals. Ha! This is, their dynamic starts so early. And man, something I love in this scene that's just sort of to the side is that Strife is so terrible that even the prelates are vaguely disappointed when Nate doesn't kill him. Right. Well, it's time for Strife, using his very well-developed powers, to telekinetically and telepathically torture the crap out of Nathan, until the voice in Nathan's head, Rachel freaking Summers, still alive even though her body's been comatose for ages, helps Nathan unleash those powers. And goddamn does it work. There's a burst and Strife is just floored, but that means that Nathan's techno-organic virus flares out it takes over his body because his powers are no longer holding it in check they were too distracted going after strife and nathan almost liquefies into this shapeless mass of machinery with his flesh stretching and ripping over it and it is just so painful looking if nothing else and just so permanent looking so the good guys manage to escape, and the complex is blown sky high thanks to Nathan's Rachel-assisted telekinesis, and, and Nathan vaguely reforms. And Scott, in the meantime, realizes who's been helping his, his younger kid. He realizes that, yeah, his very old alternate future daughter is still alive, at least mentally, and he goes and visits her still body and whispers to her thank you and I'm, I'm sorry sorry i never treated you much like a daughter when i had the chance 
I just wanted you to know how very proud I am to have been your father. In case I never made it clear to you before, I love you, Rachel Summers. I've read this comic like twice in the last week and probably 40 times in the years before, and this part still chokes me up. It's a hell of a thing. Well, Shaver's not having too many feelings in that direction because he's having feelings about Apocalypse and Strife. He thought Apocalypse was better than this, but Apocalypse is clearly trying to make Strife into as shitty a child as possible to extinguish anything good inside him so that Strife can be the perfect dark vessel for Apocalypse's soul. And Shaver, though he may have dedicated his career to evil, has his limits. He's not going to let millions die. He is every inch the hero, like 180 of those inches. Did we mention that Shaver is seriously like 15 feet tall? It's never really explained, but he is. He's got big robot armor. Uh, he, the structure of his face makes it look like that's just still sort of him. Maybe he's just got a really big head. That could be. He's got a really big head, a normal-sized body, and a robot suit around that normal-sized body that makes it look like his body is proportional to his head. Which brings us to The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, number four, the final issue, Sacrifice, which has the same writer, penciler, and colorist, and whose inking team um, has, has shifted slightly and is now Alve, Bill Anderson, Al Milgram, and Joe Rubenstein. Twelve years after Scott and Jean arrived in the future, Nate is dying. Puberty and his burgeoning mutant powers have basically brought the techno-organic virus out of remission, and now he's pretty much a protoplasmic mess of machinery. However, the local healer the, the, who, who's working with the Ascani is able to determine one kind of critical detail, and that is that the machinery that comprises most of Nate's body right now is, isn't just machinery, it's alive. And what that means is that, in theory, if Nate can sufficiently harness his, his abilities, especially the biokinetic abilities that Gene's been trying to train him in for as long as they've been there, he might be able to save himself. But inside that mass of metal and flesh and coma-ness, Nathan psychically comes face-to-face -face with Rachel. But it's not the very, very old woman that we've seen in this series. In fact, it's a version of Rachel we haven't seen in a long time. This is Rachel as she pictures her truest self. And it's Rachel at age 14, before Charles Xavier was assassinated, before she lost her family, before she was taken by Ahab and twisted into a hound, before she was sent back in time and then forward again. This is Rachel basically uncorrupted um, and also wearing galoshes, because why not? Man, this whole thing just makes me so sad. The idea that she's had so many experiences and yet what she goes back to for comfort is before any of the experiences that we've seen even happened. Yeah, there's what she became, but this is what she identifies as herself. So Rachel gives Nathan a sort of crash course in how much destiny sucks. Uh, the concept, not the individual. Uh, right, that. The reason I called you brother is more than half of the reason I'm here. I want you to know that you have a much larger support system, a larger family, than you ever imagined. Does this mean, Rachel, you came to take me home? Just the opposite, really, kiddo. I'm here to explain why you'll never have a home. Oof. But one of the things I like about Rachel Summers is that she's not one to sugarcoat things. If she respects somebody, she's straight up with them. 
And she also manages to talk Nate through pulling his body back together and holding it together. And this is, for most of his life, going to occupy the vast majority of what would otherwise be Omega-level telekinesis. Yeah, she mentions at one point that he could, like, stop a star with his telekinesis or read every mind in the solar system with his telepathy, but not if he wants to keep himself alive. And that's easy to forget that Cable isn't just a powerful mutant. Like, there's a reason that Cable was engineered by Mr. Sinister to be the one force capable of stopping Apocalypse. Nathan is arguably the most powerful mutant in history. Well, and we're seeing that in the Marvel Universe now as his... his multiversal equivalent is just cheerfully rewriting reality oh nate gray you rascally scamp with a nice new beard and a great big bathrobe Mm-hmm. now nathan does not yet have have a fancy beard but he does manage to pull his body back together and he wakes up abruptly to find that scott is still there with him but also with the knowledge that Red is somehow in trouble. Red is in fact out on a raid. This is the culmination of three years groundwork by the Ascanis, by the, the Rebellion to destroy the legacy virus. Scott has stayed with Nathan. Scott explains. He needed me once, and I let him go. Even if there is nothing I can do other than be here for him, I won't, I can't leave him alone again. And before the raid, when Slim said that, Red just basically said, okay, I get it. I'll go on the raid. You watch over Nathan. We're going to be okay. I'm coming back to you. And again, I'm so impressed at how well in sync Scott and Jean are in this world and in this life, and how we never quite see them hit this point in the main timeline. You know, they might be fighting against impossible odds, but in a lot of ways, this is the two of them at their best. Back at Apocalypse's Citadel... Shiver is continuing to express somewhat genteel but still intense dismay over Apocalypse's plans for strife. Apocalypse doesn't give a shit. Shiver starts. But for the sake of light and darkness, Lord, he's just a child. Less than that, actually. He's a means to an end. We also learn the somewhat delightful detail that Strife is literally his own namesake, as Apocalypse says, I named him after an ancient enemy of mine, a man whose own machinations nearly destroyed me, but who, in the end, only made me stronger. God damn it. I love it. This is it's time travel and clones and people not knowing what's going on and paradoxes that don't make any sense if you think about them. And this, this is how you X-Men right here. So anyway, how Shaver X-Men's is by taking matters into his own hands. He meets Turin and company's raiding party and he says, OK, you know what? Now we're going to team up and take down Apocalypse. And then this is how you do the climax of the story. We've reordered events a little bit, but in the in the actual comic, this stuff is happen- happening concurrent to Nate fighting for his life against the techno-organic virus. And it just feels like everything is at stake. Apocalypse, meanwhile, is preparing to take over Strife's body. And because he's Apocalypse, he's got to make time for one last villain speech. Tell me, Xavier. Can you see me from the mud and mire that is in your grave? Do you see I was right all along that I outlived you, Magneto, Sinister, and Holocaust, even your descendants, 
the Ascani. I outlived you all. I stand where the others have fallen, just as I predicted. I have survived. Unfortunately, his continuing survival is now blocked from two angles. First, the good guys attack, but second, Apocalypse starts to try to take over Strife, and in doing so, discovers that the kid he napped was, in fact, the clone. And that creates some problems, because apparently Apocalypse's system of possession doesn't work nearly as well on clones. He needs the original. Why? Who the hell knows? The original is here. Nate is here along with Slim and Red, the whole damn unit Dayspring, and they're helping Strife resist Apocalypse's possession attempt. They do not reply with words. Instead, they act in unison, acting as a family for what may be the first and only time in their lives. They strike as one. God damn, it is so fucking epic. But just as things are looking like they're going as right as they could, something starts to slip. Whatever had been anchoring Scott and Jean in the future for the last dozen years is starting to fail. And um, specifically what's happening is that Rachel is dying and her consciousness is what was holding them there. They're able to work together to destroy Apocalypse's current form and to prevent him from going to a new body. But Scott and Jean are already starting to fade away. They're already starting to discorporate. They're trying to console Nathan. They're trying to talk to him, but he can't hear or touch them. And as Rachel dies, she connects telepathically with them and she she gives Jean back the last fragment of what's let Rachel keep them there for so long. I'd like to ask one last favor. You and Dad, all of us, accomplished a lot here. Apocalypse had practically destroyed our family, but we managed to take it back from him. We rose from the ashes again. I won't be here for the rest of the fight, Mom. So I was wondering if you'd take back the one thing I took from you. I'd like you to carry it with you and think of me. I know there's a lot of pain and hurt attached to the name Phoenix, but there's a lot of good, I hope, as well. I tried to do the right thing for all of us. I tried to save all of us. Please, Jean, will you? And Rachel knows what she's asking. She knows all of the darkness associated with the name Phoenix that Jean has experienced. Because remember, the Phoenix Force was a positive thing for Rachel, but it really wasn't for Jean. And Jean, 12 years older and more experienced and with that much more history and knowledge of what's been sacrificed to bring them here, not only accepts it, but says that she'll, she'll take the name with pride. And that's one of the parents talking to one of the children, but the other pair converses as well. We get what's basically a callback to Scott talking to Nathan as he sent Nathan to the future for the first time back in X-Factor Endgame, but now it's two-way. Now it's not just a monologue, it's a conversation, as Scott begins. Nate, there's so much I want to say to you. So many things I want to teach you. About life, about the people who love you. I wish I could explain to you why Red and I have to go, but all I know is that we have no choice. Please, don't leave me, Slim. I can take the disease. I can take down another dozen apocalypses. But please, I can't do it alone! You'll never be alone, son. Not in your heart. Not in the only way it really matters. Because I'll be there, Nate. 
Because I love you, son. Remember that always. You'll be many things to many people. Sometimes loved and respected, other times feared and hated, almost always misunderstood. Someday, you'll be a cable that unites the past with the present and future, yesterday and today and tomorrow. You'll be all those things, Nathan Christopher, but know that you'll never be alone. Never. And with Slim and Red, Scott and Jean, having now vanished into who knows where from Nathan's perspective, there's only one person left to offer tween Cable some denouement, and that is Chevere. You understand, of course, that it does not end here. I am but one of Ensabinor's followers, one of the disenchanted. But those who are loyal to him, those in positions of power, count themselves in the thousands. There will be many who will search endlessly for his heir, and for the young boy responsible for inflicting such harm on the dynasty of Apocalypse. I have resources at my command. I believe I can protect both myself and this child. But you, Stripling, I fear. To which Cable responds. I'm not the one you should be worrying about, Chevere. From everything Red and Slim told me, Apocalypse went a long way to taking apart a dream. I'm going to put it back together. Again. And then he gets a lot of guns, I guess. And that's the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. And oh man, I love this story now, but I also really love this story as a child. I was a child of divorce, and I was a kid who really felt like he was nothing special. And so this book was just this enormous fantasy for me of this incredibly tight-knit family with this incredibly important destiny. Now, don't get me wrong. Divorce can be awesome and necessary, and it certainly was with my parents. But at the same time, man, this book was just such a comfort. In the same way that New Mutants was a comfort, the idea of having a bunch of found family of peers or X-Men was a comfort of being accepted despite being different. This book is just beautiful and beautifully done. I love this book so damn much. It grasps so much of what matters to me about the X-Men, and especially about this family and each of these characters individually and as a group. The way that Lobdell and Ha are able to push the boundaries of the kinds of stories you can tell by just entirely exiting the, the world and the genre of superhero comics is really, really tremendous. And it, I feel like it really fleshes out Scott and Gene and Nathan in ways that would otherwise have been largely impossible and are so, so profoundly valuable. It also kind of rewrote what the deal with Cable was. He'd been around for four years at this point, but between this miniseries and to a lesser extent Cable 6 through 8 leading up to it with a few revelations there... This really is going to define the character of Cable for decades. The idea that his creation was the object of Mr. Sinister's machinations and specifically for the purpose of defeating Apocalypse. The fact that he came back in time to do apocalypse stuff and not to, um, you know, follow Strife or find the last external cannonball. And I think that's a really positive move. Yes, it is a blatant retcon. It flies in the face of plot that has been directly stated, 
But Cable, as a messianic, time-lost warrior trying to fix the very concept of time to prevent his dark future from coming to pass, that is fucking powerful, and that is fucking rad. What this does is take Cable from representing in a lot of the way, a lot of ways the worst of the the decay of the superhero genre in the mid '90s to being someone who doesn't fit that because specifically he's essentially an exile from another genre altogether is so cool. It's so freaking cool. Now, this isn't the last we're going to see of this timeline by a long shot, but it's also not the last we're going to see of this type of miniseries. There actually is a sequel miniseries advertised on the very last page that's going to come out about a year later called Ascani Sun, written by Lobdell again, but also with help from Jeff Loeb and pencils again by Gene Ha. And I've actually never read that before. We're also going to see a series called The Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Um, that's going to throw Scott and Gene to uh, Sinister's or, um, origin story. So to to the uh, the dubiously and highly anachronistic Victorian era of Earth 616 for, yeah, the origin of, of Mr. Sinister. That one's got a different creative team and is more of a structural sequel than a plot-based sequel. It does, however, create another really ridiculous name-related time loop. Oh boy, I think we had a cold open about that at one point. Now, normally this is where we would jump to your questions, but... Oh, I, I guess the okay. The carolers have been very patient, so so I think I think we should probably let them them throw a song in, and then we'll go from there straight into our interview segment. Oh, you better watch out! You might wanna hide. Marauders are already lurking inside. Sinister is cloning this town. He's making a list. Checking it twice, gonna find out whose genes to splice. Sinister is cloning this time. He knows if you're a Summers, he knows if you're a Gray, he knows if you're an X-Men, and he wants your DNA. So you better watch out, you might wanna hide, marauders are already lurking inside, sinister is cloning this time. So with us today is someone whose voice you may not have heard on the show, but who has been a presence in connection with it and, and basically on it since very, very early on in our run. Um, specifically, you've been seeing his illustrations for the last four years, one for every episode. With us today is the official Explain the X-Men artist, David Wynn. David, hi. Hello. It's so good to finally have you on the show. Yeah, Jay, like you were saying, um, even though he's never been on the show, the art is like... It's inextricably linked in my mind to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. And so listeners, if you haven't been to our website and checked out the art that David does for each episode, you've got to check it out. It is freaking amazing. But yeah, let's talk about all of those things. Yeah, so how did how did a nice artist like you get involved with a couple miscreants like us? Uh, I mean, uh, I, I question the, the way round that is. You, I think you two are much nicer than I am. But, uh, well, I met you, Jay, on live journal i was reading your your column on the girl wonder website inside out many many years ago and then yeah live journal yeah god that would have been what like 2006 2007 ish uh yeah around there yes oh my gosh horrifying 
that yeah. was more just the thought of live journal just... <laughs> it, it still exists apparently i think wasn't it invaded by the russians isn't that what happened yeah but that, yeah a really long time ago yeah I, I, my, my account's probably still there i, I mm, that's a worrying thought anyway i deleted mine I <laughs> yeah i I'm, I'm lost now uh so yes we met on on there and then We've been friends for a long time, and then you decided to do a podcast about the X-Men and stuff. <laughs> um, that's not a very concise answer, but that's that's the sort of rough overview. You drew, you drew us a bunch of fan art really early on based on some really bad jokes we 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 told. And I, I think the, the, first, the first goal we set up when we created the Patreon was specifically having you do weekly, um, weekly illustrations. Yeah. Yeah, I remember very shortly after we started, uh, we started getting fan art in, and I remember you did a picture of Laser Wolf, some dumb joke I made about about Cyclops from episode like one or two or something, and I was blown away that people were just drawing stuff based on things I said, and the stuff was really good. So when yeah, when we started actually working together, having already seen that fan art, having already talked to you a little bit, that was awesome. Cool. Well, and you and I had collaborated on stuff before, although I don't, I don't think we'd ever quite finished anything. Uh, yeah, I've, we, we, yes, we still have a, an unfinished storybook. It will happen. It will, honest, at some point. It's about a dinosaur and an astronaut who are friends. It'll be delightful. They are on vacation. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the, the fan art thing was just, well, you know, my friend's doing a podcast. I'm obviously going to do things to support. But then also it was so good and so funny and, like, just... Well, just all around brilliant, a brilliant podcast right from the start. Um, that I, you know, how could I not be inspired to draw stuff? And then, and then, yeah, you put it as a goal, and at some ridiculously, you know, it was like a nice idea. But I was like, they're not going to hit that goal, and like they might hit it eventually, but they're not going to hit that anytime soon. And then you did it in twenty four hours. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, that was slightly terrifying. It was ridiculous when we first started on um, Patreon and all of a sudden, I guess people liked our show and all of a sudden we were scrambling because we had all these goals like, you know, having you do art. And I think it was episode 21 when you did your first piece that was associated with an episode. Uh, that was like a, uh, that was for a Kurt Busick interview episode. It was about the Silver Age X-Men and you drew this picture of them like sort of at a, a yellow toned picnic being all idyllic and stuff. It's the famous five. The one that was based on the, the novel series. Yes. The- um, oh, so that was 21. I've been trying to, I, I have for the life of me been unable to work out which episode I started on. So that's good to know. Okay. So, so now I can work out how many I've done at some point. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that was during a period, I, everything I was doing at that point, I was doing with single colour shading. I can't remember really why I was doing that. But yeah, yellow uh, was a big thing for, for a while for some reason. One of the things I really, really love about having you on the show, other than the excuse to get to work with you on the regular, is that I feel like podcasting is such, it's, it's an auditory medium and we're talking about a, vid, a visual medium and we can include pictures from the comics, but the illustrations kind of bridge the commentary and the original visually in ways that the podcast itself just can't. Yeah. And I always really appreciate like when you'll have illustrations that are based on not just the comics we're covering, but also the way we're covering them. Like whether that's a pop culture mashup, like when you did the die hard with a lobster one for our fallen angels episode or Rachel Summers, no good, very bad day. Like, I don't know, it's just such a weird little treat to be able to see something that is uniquely Jane Miles explain the X-Men in visual form. 
it it's really fun to do. I mean, uh, I I always end up saying to people like the 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 credit for things like I mean both of those you just said that they they both come from Jay really, like or from things you said in the actual episode, like the um the things that I always get the most compliments for from people are oh that's brilliant how did you come up with that and I'm like, Jay sent me an email with a single sentence that summed up the entire concept of the image and all I had to do was draw it. <laughs> usually um uh although the the rachel summer's no good very bad day i had no idea what that was I, I don't think that book is really a thing over here so i so i had to do lots of googling it's such a ubiquitous picture book here that it's it's the the idea of it being unfamiliar is, is so unfamiliar in itself to me but the thing is it goes the other way too i mean you are if i recall responsible for the once and fuchsia king well i mean puns are kind of that I, th- I think they're just a national pastime in this country. I don't think of myself as being really into puns, but I still come up with them all the time. And yeah, so I can't, <laughs> I can't be held too responsible for that. It's not my fault I was born here. So one of the things that we, Miles and I were talking about before we started doing this interview that we both really love about your art is how well you're able to evoke specific artists while still very much maintaining your own style. And that's something I know we've asked you to do a lot over the history of the show. And I'm wondering whether you have any favorites, any artists whose, whose tricks or whose, whose signature moves you go back to playing with um, or would like to more. Ah, well, yeah, that is, I mean, that's one of the most sort of fun and challenging parts of doing these illustrations is is trying to sort of capture something of the feel sorry i'm sort of not directly answering your question but i will get there um but trying to capture something of the feel of the of the art of the actual comic or 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 whatever piece you've asked me to um uh homage uh while knowing that i'm no maintaining my own style isn't so much a, a, a sense of you know I, I'm a strong stylist or anything it's that I know I can't actually draw like a lot of these people you've you've asked me to draw like um, Frank Frazetta in the past and that's a little bit cruel um you know uh, but <laughs> so I know that I'm gonna manage that so I kind of it's it's finding ways to do that but still just draw like me but um the most fun one is is always Bill Sukovich. So I was on I was on an episode of the Fantasticast recently, and um, they they were asking me roughly this same sort of question, and I and I was saying how you can see a, a I I think you can see a change in my artwork or, or my general style between when you, before you guys started covering Bill Sienkiewicz's New Mutants and after I think my my inking start I mean it's not like I'm suddenly some mixed media. Uh, you know, genius like he is, but the my inking style is is significantly looser now. I think, and more, and I, I'm, I'm I feel much more open to experimentation since doing those the that run of pieces. And um, yeah, anything sort of working with it, trying to incorporate his style is really fun to do because it, it's kind of like likes to do anything most. But then also, um, Windsor Smith is a massive influence on me anyway. So any excuse to sort of, I, I, which, but one that I don't think is necessarily obvious in my work normally. So any excuse to lean into that is really nice. And then, um, you know, I did did a Kent Williams piece uh, this week, this weekend, just gone uh, yesterday. In fact, you know, a piece. Well, I say I did a Kent, I didn't do a Kent Williams piece. I did a piece inspired by a comic uh, drawn by Kent Williams. But again, he's an artist I really like, and sort of trying to get that feel just drawing Wolverine roughly how he does was really fun. Although the inking ended up 
being much slicker than his. But yeah, I, I, I tend to really like the more sort of expressionistic, st- uh, stylized artists. I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed uh, bouncing off of early Jay Lee recently, for example. I think he, um, he's amazing. He's, I, I'm not actually that such a big fan of his more recent work. Like it's great, but it's not, it doesn't do amazing things for me. But his early work with that sort of rough, angular inking style that's, uh, yeah, I love that stuff. It feels like almost early Vertigo horror comics and his his old stuff. I remember thinking that specifically with regards to the Executioner's song tie-ins. Um, we were talking a little bit about process, and actually you mentioned the Cat Williams piece. So I, I feel like that's a, that's a good angle on sort of another way that these tend to go, which is that when there's a specific style that we want evoked or when there's just a really amazing comic and I can't choose what, what image to pull from. A lot of those are ones, Dave, that come from you where I'll, I'll send you a link to the comic or I'll, I'll, I'll send you a lot of images and just say, if there's something that grabs you, just pull it out and run with it. Um, and that's, that's how you end up with things like that, that beautiful Kent Williams piece where, you know, you mentioned pulling for pieces of his style. And what I think you really nailed in there are the sort of weird oblique angles and the ways that figures relate to backgrounds in his work. Cause those are weird and they're really distinctive. Oh yeah. I mean, um, I'm, composition is kind of the most important part of drawing for me i think it's it it's the thing i'm most you know, i love a, a, an unusual inking style and everything but it um it that's that's meaningless if the composition of the page isn't beautiful you know um you know i'm a huge mike mignola fan but the thing the the biggest influence i draw from him is his composition but so yeah if i'm if i'm trying to emulate an artist that's one of the main things I'm 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 looking at, you know, there there's the forms and there's the the shapes of, of everything are it are obviously very important. But for you know the number one thing, almost I want to say I think about it. I almost don't even think about it because it's the first, as far as I'm concerned, that's the priority anyway. So it's all it's almost without me thinking fully about it when I'm looking at someone's work the thing I'm trying to absorb is how they lay things out in relation to each other and how much, where, you know, how they use negative space, you know, and all of that kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, thank you. I'm really glad that worked on that piece. (laughs) And going in almost an opposite direction stylistically. um, So you were talking about that Kent Williams style about aping his existing style. I'm thinking about one of my favorite of your pieces, which is the one you did for episode 36. That's the Lila Cheney um, concert poster. And, and that was, of course, the one that actually ended up in an X-Men comic. Rachel Gray is wearing that in X-Men Gold Annual Number 1, which, I mean, just blew us away. So I'd be curious to hear, A, you know, how you built that piece of art, and B, what was that like, seeing your work in a freaking X-Men comic? Um, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the questions in reverse order. Like, it was amazing, absolutely amazing seeing it in there. It, for me, you know, I keep forgetting that it had X-Men written on the cover because in my head that was a, an Excalibur comic. Um, yeah. And and that's the, the kind of the most important thing. Uh, um, we'll probably end up covering this in, in a, or talking more about this. But um, before you guys did this podcast, I sort of identified as somebody who does not like the X-Men. Uh, no, long, no longer, obviously. But um, like when I was a, a kid, read it, you know, um, buying comics literally at the what we call a news agent you call the newsstand um i i actually actively avoided the x-men after a certain point but i was a big fan of the early x-factor and but my favorite 
one of probably my favorite marvel comic was excalibur and i because i've always loved captain britain and i've always loved alan davis's art ever since he was in 2000 ad I'm, you know um and those comics were so beautiful and so fun and you know i i, I picked up halfway through the cross time caper that's where i came into excalibur and um his so having some of my work appearing in an excalibur comic and on my favorite character as well in excalibur is you know yeah that was uh, the the nine-year-old in me was incredibly excited um and to answer your first question second the the first part of that process i'll be honest was googling pictures of joan jet uh <laughs> because it was working out uh, how to draw Lila Cheney because one of the things about her is she's not actually drawn very consistent consistently in the comics and the char- the character as she comes across especially as you know bearing in mind primarily for me I know uh, her from the way you guys talk about her rather than actually reading the comics themselves um, and in my head I've just imagined this really cool rock star so also that's Joan Jett isn't it so that was step one, and then creating a a poster, looking up so looking up what rock posters looked like in that era. Um, you know, it was a, a lot of sort of research, I guess, of just what what a poster like that would have looked like at the time. Um, deciding that most of them were pretty rubbish, so then kind of kind of going forward from from there, and it, it's kind of sneakily. Uh, a bit of a mucker type yeah. thing, Alfonso Mucker or Alphonse Mucker. I can't remember how to say his name. Um, and uh, beyond that, then I, I I drew it in pencil, then I went over it in ink, and then I put some color on it. Uh, that was basically it. Um, and that shirt has gotten all around. I should say, long before it actually made it into the X Men comics, it went in the other direction. And if if you've seen the design, you know that it's not only Lila, but it it also cites a band that exists. In reality, as well as in a number of fictional universes, um, that's Cat's Cat's Laughing, and we've got somewhere a photo of Emma Bull, who's the lead singer of that band, wearing the Lila T-shirt. Um, so this is this is this is the official multi. This this is this is the one place where the podcast has just gotten its claws into the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave, where you have too, and it's it's also there's a slightly longer origin to that that design, Miles. I don't know if you remember that this is specifically the illustration that we commissioned entirely so I could get it printed on a shirt and then own the shirt. That, there are very few illustrations, and there are a number of, of Dave's illustrations that have ended up on shirts, but there are very few that we've gone into with that goal. And this is, in fact, this is the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Although one of my absolute favorite items of your art on apparel that we sell is probably the demon bear art that you did, sort of uh, homaging Bill Sienkiewicz's style, that uh, we sell on leggings. And I gotta say, seeing a scary demon bear on somebody's leggings is one of the peak experiences of being a human being. Oh, dude, you have no idea how much scarier it could have been. The first image preview version of that was just with the mouth, mouth right at crotch level. Oh, jeez. Well, that that is actually on my um, my proudest creative achievement, as you guys both already know, because you have been greatly party to it, is my list of good names for a band. And Demon Bear Crotch is one of my favorite names on that list of good names for a band. So you mentioned you came into the X universe 
and and for a long time your inroad to it was Excalibur. And and we know, you know, from that conversation that your favorite character in that comic is is Rachel Gray. Who who are your favorite X-Men if you, if you had to if you had to actually sit down and pick? Um, both as characters and to draw. Well, a Cyclops. Like Cyclops is the the one. Like um which is one of the things I th- I think one of the things that we've always bonded on, I think. Um oh. I, I imprinted very strongly on him in the early X Factor comics. I think you know there, there's 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 a whole sort of laundry list of of points of identification for me with him as a character. You know, um, you know, I the newsagent where I bought my comics was around the corner from my my dad's house, like that where I would go every other weekend. And at that point, Cyclops was an absentee father, so which. You know, it's something I only realise in retrospect. But then Cyclops himself has an absentee dad. Um, and then, you know, he's uh, got this whole sort of responsibility thing going on. He's an older sibling. I'm an older sibling. He, um, I'm, you guys have met me and know that I am enormous. And, um, uh, and which comes with, a, a, again, this sort of responsibility thing of like, you don't want to, uh, I have to be, quite controlled in my movements and, and my actions and I can't really ever lose my temper because the consequences are too extreme and um you know and that's something I certainly learned as a teenager and of course that's that's a cyclops thing and so on and so on and so on so so the the number one answer is always cyclops but then you know going out from there you know um Rachel Summers Rachel Gray it she's just really cool like <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm printed again, imprinted on her in Excalibur, but, um, and then the rest, uh, they'll it's a kind of a combination of what's fun to draw and what, and what, uh, what I identify with like Havoc. I really like Havoc. I've always had a strong sort of, uh, feeling of liking him ever since I was young, but I actually think that is just because of. He looks really cool, and his powers in particular look really cool. That whole thing, especially you know, in the in the solid black costume with the the circle on it that looks the same from whatever angle you view him, like that, that's just really cool. Uh, and I don't actually think it's necessarily got that much to do with him as a character, really. I don't know, you know. Um, although I I do just generally like all the Summers connected characters. Um, Colossus again, point of identification, big fella, strong sense of social obligation. Um, you know, uh, uh, who else do I like? Um, Wolverine's fun to draw. I think that's the that's the dirty secret of of Logan of why he's so ubiquitous. He is just really fun to draw. Um, and I'm not coming up with with this is terrible. I'm not coming up with any more answers right now in my head. Um, Archangel. Archangel's really fun to draw. You'll, you'll be noticing some certain sort of repeated themes around an, an era there, of um, and and connections back to Excalibur and early X Factor. To be honest, um, yeah, I'm, Cable. I never expected to enjoy drawing Cable as much as I do now that I've been drawing him quite regularly for you guys. I think, um, yeah, he's. Uh, it, it makes sense. Like he's he's kind of you know Liam Neeson in Taken. But just uh, as reimagined by uh, Rob Liefeld. But he's also Cable is also the X Men character I think of as most visually aligned with 2008 me, because he's got he's got the ridiculousness he's got the the 
easily shifts into satire without changing the visuals. He's got the dread glower. That's true. That is true. I mean, there's a lot of the 90s that's like that. Um, uh, I mean, Profit could very easily be in 2080 as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the 2080 thing's interesting, actually. Um, sorry, this is a complete tangent, but I always mean to, I've always wanted to talk to you guys about, are you aware of a comic called Strontium Dog? Um, I am because you've told me about it. Uh, yeah, I've never heard of it myself. So it was a strip. It, it is a strip in 2000 AD, and they they've never sort of openly admitted that it is in any way inspired by the X Men. But it is about a mutants being oppressed for because of their genetic difference. Um, like it's it's essentially taking the the core idea of the X Men and transplanting it into like a 2000 AD setting where it becomes a it actually becomes like a weird space western and the main character is a guy called Johnny Alpha who has x-ray eyes uh, which for some reason also means he can read people's minds because he can look into your brain and see if you're telling the truth i i, I don't fully that follows yeah sure uh, yeah and his he and his his but he worked all mutants are forced to work as bounty hunters his partner as a bounty hunter is a viking an actual viking that he met on a time travel trip uh, to that he went to to catch a criminal who had escaped through time with a time travel device obviously um and he hooked up with with this ship full of vikings made really good friends with one called wolf sternhammer um and decided to bring him back to the future and uh and now they're they're just bros who go around uh hunting people uh they didn't explain that for years years like they just introduced the strontium dog here's johnny alpha um, and here's his mate, Wolf Sternhammer, actual Viking. No explanation at all as to how he got there. Um, anyway, anyway, yeah. And in that, like the the whole mutant thing, you know, you've got guys where they've got like an arm growing out of the top of their head, or um, you know, that's probably the most normal looking one. You know, guy with people with like a foot on their forehead, or um, you know, they're they're just a head with. They're just ahead with an arm growing out of each side of their head and they walk around on their hands or, you know, um, really strange um, looking people. And most of the mutations are of no use whatsoever. You know, uh, one of Johnny and Wolf's best mates is a, a Scottish guy called Middenface McNulty. And literally his mutation is that he's incredibly ugly. And so when I sort of think of of uh, of how X Men intersects with two thousand eighty, that's the first place my brain goes. So Cable would not really fit in in Strontium Dog because he's too pretty. If you see what I mean, you know, someone like um, Beak <laughs> is he is he called Beak? The uh, in, from which uh, of course Morrison's X Men, um, you know, or or um, is it Glob Herman? Is it Glob or Gob? Yeah, that. Yeah, uh, it's Glob, or or from Morrison's run. There's also Ugly John, although he doesn't survive his first appearance. Whose mutation is that he's got three faces and all of them are ugly. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. You see that that so that's kind of what I think of when I think of uh, th- those are the characters I could see fitting in at 2080. You know, um, Dread isn't as representative of the whole of 2080 as I think um, it maybe comes across in the US sometimes. Like the main heroes, yeah. But but they're generally surrounded by just complete weirdness. But anyway. 
Well, my, my frame of reference for 2000 AD is heavily, heavily weighed in the direction of Zombo, <laughs> um, just because there's a collection of it, and, and I'll read anything that Al Ewing writes. So, um, which, which I feel like is probably an equally, or if not more inaccurate perspective on the whole. <laughs> no, Zombo is actually, Zombo, I think, is a very good point of reference for 2000 AD, to be honest. Okay. I think, um, yeah, uh, uh, Al is the most sort of, of all the the X two thousand AD writers to make it on, on your side of the pond. Um, Al Ewing is the writer who has most managed to hang on to his to the two thousand AD sensibility in the cross in the crossing over. I think, um, but also, yeah, Zombo is is kind of pure distilled essence of the best of two thousand AD. I love that comic so much. We've talked a lot about other people's comics, but you are, and something that I, I don't think we mention enough on the show is that you are not primarily an illustrator. You know, you, you do illustrations for us, you do illustrations for another podcast and on and off, but you are also, you're a cartoonist. That is what you do. Um, so if you can tell listeners a bit about your comics and where they can find them, I would love to point them in that direction. Ooh. Uh, right. So the first part of that's reasonably easy the second part of that gets a bit more complicated but um so i've been doing i've been making comics for as long as we've known each other actually so since uh, 2007 yeah. i published my first book it was a graphic novel called damnation and since then um i've had periods of unproductivity but mostly doing work reasonably constantly um uh, I did a series called Particle Fiction. I did a book called Hypergirl um, with, with my friend Ian Sharman. Um, I did a, a webcomic called Spacescape with him as well. Uh, recent, more, My most recent thing was a, a webcomic called Unsworn that was kind of a swords and sorcery thing. Um, I've kind of covered a lot of different styles and, and, and genres. And um, the thing about finding them is most of the work that... I've done off my own back has been hosted on Tumblr over the last little while. I, I genuinely don't know if it's still there or not. Um, I, when the, the whole warning came out about things were going to be taken down and everything, I was like, all oh, right, I should log back into Tumblr and, and, and just look, cause I, I haven't really done anything this year. So it's been a while since I've, I've, you know, been anywhere near all of that. And I, I just didn't get, around to it i had quite a busy week i didn't get a chance and today's the the cutoff i have no idea if any of it was flagged or not i and, and i've saw people with their their carpets flagged so i've no idea um so go look unsworn.tumblr.com uh particlefiction.tumblr.com ideasmancomic i think.tumblr.com have a look see if they're there or not they might not be um uh yeah oh, oh and look me up on comicsology of course that is the thing the uh, some of the, a small amount of my stuff is available on comicsology I, uh there's a particle fiction collection that just collects the first six issues of that there were 14 together but um so the first six the, the collection of the first six issues is on comicsology and the hypergirl a book which has an introduction by you jay um yeah that those are both available on comicsology uh yeah other than that come and find me at conventions and i I generally have like mini comics printed up for sale at conventions uh yeah that was a very long-winded answer we're gonna have to 
drag you back to one in the states eventually, or make our way to one in the UK because it's it's we've we've gotten to actually meet once in person, and it's which is a little ridiculous given the length of, of our friendship. Yeah. But we'll we'll do it again someday, ideally in spring, actually. Yeah, hopefully. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. You should really, um, if you're going to come to the UK for a, con- a convention, the one that would suit you guys the absolute best, I think, would be Thought Bubble. Um, we used to have a London Super Comic Con in in London, which would have been, I think, ideal for you guys as well. I, that that was where I met the largest concentration of Explain the X Men fans at any one convention in the UK was at London Super Comic Con. Unfortunately, that convention doesn't exist anymore. But so, yeah, Thought Bubble. That's the one you guys should get to. And I would love to come to the US again. someday. I hope one of the advantages to to now being a bi coastal podcast is that at least one of us, I. I've discovered that it's not actually completely impossibly exorbitant to fly between New York and the UK, which is, is a really exciting thing to know now. Um, yeah. Finally, I, I think we've got one more question. We mentioned um, the, the, that there's another podcast that you've started illustrating for, and that's a Daredevil podcast. So where if, 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 if folks use your art as, as the watermark for podcasts worth listening to, what's the <laughs> other one they should be hearing? Oh, that's Joshua and Jamie do Daredevil. And it, it is, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it. It's they're, they're still in sort of the mid 70s at the moment, while, where Daredevil is still quite a silly comic. And um, that's that's very entertaining and a lot of fun for me to do illustrations for. They're, they're, um, I think they've just finished Steve Gerber's run on Daredevil. I had no idea Steve Gerber had ever written Daredevil. Um, it goes about pretty much exactly how you would imagine that would go. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Well, yeah, so listeners, uh, definitely check out David's stuff. And like we said, if you haven't been following the art that he does for each one of our episodes on explainthexmen.com, check that out. It is a real treat, and we'll see about getting a, a gallery to make it even easier to look at. Yeah. And Dave, thank you for making the time to join us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Thank you. It's, it's an honor. Absolute, an absolute honor. It's you guys have made me into an X-Men fan. I now think of myself as an X-Men fan and it's because of your podcast. Um, and not just you pay me, like literally listening to the show makes, has made me care about these characters that I used to, you know, the, the soap opera aspect used to turn me off. And now it's like, no, that's, that's the point. So, yeah. Oh man, that feels great to hear. Like, if there's one thing that, I mean, I can just speak for myself, but if there's one thing I really want to do with this show, it's to introduce people to stuff that they are going to enjoy or to stuff that they could potentially enjoy. So I'm I'm so glad that we're, we're able to do that with you too. Welcome to X-Men fandom. Here are your red sunglasses. Here is your vague sense of persecution and unease. <laughs> Thanks. I think, us, I think some of us already had those things. <laughs> and you're coming in well prepared um so thank you again for joining us happy happy winter and whatever holidays they're in that you have celebrated or plan to celebrate and uh we'll see you in the new year awesome Uh, yes happy holidays to you too and thank you I saw Wolfie killing Santa Claus underneath the mistletoe last night He didn't see me creep down the stairs to have a peep. He thought that I was tucked up in my bedroom fast asleep. Then I saw Wolfie stabbing Santa Claus. He turned blue neath his beard so snowy white. 
Oh, what a laugh it would have been if Mystique had only seen Wolvie killing Santa Claus last night. Welcome back, gentle listeners. And now we are proud at long last to present... Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Awards for Excellence in Excellence. This is always one of my favorite things we do every year, Jay. And I think, as always, we are going to start it off with the Modern Corpos for X-Universe books published in the last year. Take it away, Miles. The 5th Annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Award for Excellence in Excellence in the field of writing goes to... Tom Taylor for All New Wolverine and X-Men Red. How could we pick anybody else? Best Line Artist. German Peralta for his ability to homage multiple artists' different styles while maintaining a consistent and cohesive artistic vision in Cable Past Fears. The award for Best Colorist goes to... Felipe Sobrero for his work on Generation X. The Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Excellence in Ongoing Solo Series goes to Iceman by Cena Grace, Nathan Stockman, and Frederico Blee, a series that was so good it got uncancelled, albeit only briefly, and boy howdy did it deserve it. The award for the best, and also only, Ongoing Duo Series could go to none other than Mr. and Mrs. X by Kelly Thompson, Oscar Bazaljua, and Frank Darmada. The Corbo Award for Best Ongoing Team Series goes to... X-Men Red by Tom Taylor and Mahmoud Azrar, one of the best X-Men team books I have ever, ever read. If you haven't read it, do yourself a favor. The Corbo for Best One-Shot goes to... The X-Men Holiday Special by Everyone and Their Uncle. The 2018 How Was This So Good Award for a premise that shouldn't really have worked but actually did... Goes to Infinity Warps, Weapon Hex, by Akron Blacker, Gerardo Sandoval, and Israel Silva. X-23 and the Scarlet Witch crammed into being one character with their histories crammed together as well? Yeah, it's actually great. The 2018 Cyclops Has a Good Day Award. By process of necessary elimination goes to Extermination Number 5. The award for best callback for a reference to an obscure but beloved bit of past continuity goes this year to... Chips Darsky, for his story in the X-Men Holiday Special about referencing that time Wolverine gave Nightcrawler a framed photo of himself. The About Damn Time Award... Goes to the fact that Seanan McGuire is finally, finally writing X-Books. How long have we been waiting for this? All our lives. That brings us to the 2018 Phoenix Award for Best Resurrection. Hotly contested this year. Who's our winner, Miles? Definitely Jean Grey. She'd been dead for a long time. I'd always said I thought she should stay that way for the sake of coherent storytelling and for her death to have meaning. But no, everything about her return and what she's been doing since then has been perfect. The Hero We Need Award... This is a shared award, and it goes jointly to Adam Gorham for his tireless championing of Shatterstar's butt and Leah Williams for making everything gay. The One Day This Will Be a Cold Open Award goes to... This year's Multiple Man miniseries by Matthew Rosenberg, Andy McDonald, and Tamara Bonvalon, 
We would try to explain it, but A, we'd miss out on a cold open opportunity, and B, it would probably take about an hour. Just go read it. The May Parker Memorial Scholarship for Superheroes Based in Queens Award goes to... Shatterstar. Obviously. And the False Foreshadowing Award. Thankfully, we are awarding to... Wang Beams. Maybe you should explain. They're not going to be a thing. That's all you need to know. The Orison Award for Most Awkwardly Blatant Euphemism goes to... Hand-holding as a stand-in for incest on TV show The Gifted. The 2018 Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau It's Complicated Award for Intriguing but Uncomfortable and Probably Problematic Story Elements. Goes to Psylocke going back to her original body in a side miniseries in a sort of awkward way. I guess it was a good thing? I don't know. The Irene Adler Memorial Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series. Astonishing Nightcrawler. And now we're moving a little outside of our element, which brings us to... The Best Non-X Marvel Comic. That goes to West Coast Avengers by Kelly Thompson and Stefano Caselli. I guess technically it's sort of an X book because Quentin Quire's in it, but what it mainly is is freaking great. And finally, the We Wanted to Give This an Award Award... Now, this award goes to really just something we wanted to give an award to. In this case, the absolutely peerless film Into the Spider-Verse, which you should all go see immediately if you haven't. And with that, let's move on to our classic Corbos for characters, plot elements, etc. that we covered in the last year of our podcast. The Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Buried Treasure for a story, arc, or series that ought to be treated as a classic but isn't goes to... Wolverine Killing, which, since we just covered it a couple episodes ago, you should totally remember. If not, give that episode a listen, or just read the comic. The ABD Award for Why Havoc Still Hasn't Finished His Dissertation goes to... The Government. Literally. Also, probably some combination of Guido and Madrox. Those guys are nothing but trouble. The Turbine Manacle Award for things that are totally normal in Earth-616. Goes to fixing broken jaws by gluing random bits of tech to their outsides. The This Is How We Live Now Award for most pervasive mimetic or lexical contribution. Goes to Wolverine the Jungle Adventure for introducing the word honkers to our vocabularies. The Christopher Summers Award for Most Awkward Family Reunion goes to... Dracula and his daughter Lilith in that one X-Men annual that we covered at Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival. Yikes. The Eric the Red Award for justifying the existence of this podcast goes to... Executioner's Song. We always knew it would be you, Executioner's Song. We always knew. The Future Past Award for most anticipated upcoming series coverage goes, to no one's surprise, I think, to... Generation X. I stopped reading comics shortly after Generation X started. I've only read the first few issues. I'm so excited to read the rest. The Body and Soul Award for furthering the narrative evolution of the X line goes to... Fabian Nicesa, who is doing an admirable job of carrying the torch post-Claremont. 
the Thank God It's Not the Thundercats Corbeau Award for beloved childhood character or concept that actually holds up decades later. Goes to Lucas motherfucking Bishop. I thought he was rad as hell when I was a kid and coming back. Yeah, he's he's rad as hell. The All That For Nothing Award for willfully forgotten retcons goes to... Fabian Nasesa again, for his Nova Roma retcon in New Warriors 31. You remember that time that Claremont undid it by essentially ignoring it? Yeah, that was a thing. Dear Diary Award for character who knows none of you will ever understand the depth of his pain. That goes to... Strife. God, Mom and Dad! God! The In Your Face Turn Award for Most Improved Comic goes to... X-Force, which has co- which has gone from, I think, the, the book we dreaded to probably our favorite of the line. The Layla Miller Award for Most Improved Character. Goes to, somewhat relevantly to the last one, Cable. Hey, thanks, Blood and Metal. You made Cable a lot more sympathetic and interesting. Well done. The Picture in the Tapestry Award for Elegant Resolution of Dropped Continuity Threads goes to... Alan Davis for Excalibur. The For Me It Was Tuesday Award for Most Casual Murder in an X Book. Goes to Trevor Fitzroy for offing the Hellions mostly just to look cool. Fuck you, Trevor. You totally suck. The Do You Have a License for That Award for Most Dubious Professional Performance goes to... Leonard Sampson for X Factor 87 and every subsequent attempt he has made to practice therapy. The Utopia Award for the homeland we have dreamed of for so long. Goes to FlameCon, a phenomenal, phenomenal convention. We love lots of shows, but FlameCon, you have a special, wonderful place in our heart. The They Don't Make Them Like That Anymore Award for very Bronze Agey bit of the Bronze Age goes to... Magneto's intense feelings about the smallest man in the world, as portrayed in Captain America Annual Number 4. Check out the visual companion for this one. Believe me, it's worth your time. The Jay just came here to have a good time and he is feeling so attacked award for uncomfortably relatable failure goes to... I kind of feel like this this category wins itself. But no, actually, um, that this definitely goes to Cyclops running away to Alaska to get out of an awkward conversation in X-Men number 20. And finally, and most importantly the 2018 Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Excellence at Excellence in the category of Best Listeners of Any Podcast Ever Forever goes to you, all of you, every single one of you. You are so great, and we love you so much. And man, I really, like, I love that we started this award as a conceit, but you actually just keep on earning it. You're really great. Yeah, we would totally give it to somebody else if they want it, but hey, you guys did. Nice work. As always, while we cannot offer this for the last one, we will give you a print-your-own version, individual companion to this episode if you want. If you are a creator who won one of the coveted classic or modern Corbeau Awards and you would like a physical Corbeau Award, let us know and we will make and send you one. It will involve glitter glue. It'll be great. I'm not interested in X-Men. There is just one thing I need. I don't care about Avengers, Johnny Storm, or Sue and Reed. I don't need a Shi'ar Empire, let alone a bunch of Kree. Star Gemma 
be secret scrolls are not for me I just want a friend from orbit more than you could ever know make my wish come true This Christmas, Hanukkah, Twelfth Night, or Yule And I'm just gonna keep on waiting Out here by the Jean Grey School I won't make a list and send it To New York for Charlie X I won't wait for super speed Or hope to see a Scarlet X Though I know it's unorthodox And on that sequence of lovely notes, it wouldn't be Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men without a lot of listener questions, and boy do we have a bunch for you today, or rather, boy did you have a bunch for us. RevZJ asks on Tumblr, The X-Men blue team sit down to play D&D. What alignment do they play? Now, we answered this question for two different eras of blue team. I covered the original five X-Men transported into the future X-Men blue, and here's what I've got. Beast is the DM, obviously. Iceman is nominally playing neutral good, but he's actually playing as chaotic evil because Bobby Drake is a dyed-in-the-wool chaos muppet and also doesn't care a lot about D&D rules. Angel ends up chaotic neutral by virtue of aggressive indifference. No matter what she starts with, Jean plays chaotic good. And Cyclops starts out as lawful good, but ends up lawful evil out of sheer frustration at Bobby and Warren. Now, I looked at the blue team from the 90s, from, say, X-Men Volume 2, Number 1, through whatever. So, I agree, Beast is totally the DM, we're not getting away from that. Cyclops starts out as lawful good, and he stays that way, no matter what, because Jubilee is in the game, and he feels like he has to even her out. Jubilee is chaotic. Not chaotic good, chaotic neutral, or chaotic evil, just straight-up chaotic. Beast is baffled that she can make that work, but apparently she is. Rogue is playing the most nuanced, fascinating, neutral, evil character D&D has ever seen. It's almost as if Rogue has an innate understanding of those who are different than her, and is a phenomenal role player. Gambit says his character is chaotic neutral, but he's clearly actually neutral good, and keeps trying to seduce Rogue's character into changing her ways. Psylocke? Obviously lawful neutral, no one is surprised. Wolverine refuses to play. He's spent enough time living someone else's life. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Have the Bronze Age characters such as Storm, Nightcrawler, and Colossus enjoyed more staying power than later characters because they appeared at just the right time in the X-Men's publishing history? Or do you see something fundamentally better about them than about the X-Men who came later? Honestly, I think those characters were at the right place in the right time. They came on at the beginning of a very long, well-loved run, and so they had lots of time to develop under one consistent, excellent writer in the form of Chris Claremont. I feel like most characters under those circumstances could likely have become just as deep and memorable as them. I'm, I'm looking at you, Maggot. 
I don't think it's just timing, though, and I don't think it's just continuity. I don't think that they would have had the staying power that they did if they hadn't burst on fully formed in personality, but also with really, really stellar designs. If you look at these guys, they are such simple, iconic, easily recognizable characters and easily adapted across media. Dave Cockrum just knocked it out of the park with all of them. And I feel like that's got to be a huge, huge factor in their success and their staying power. They also had the good fortune to be to be developed early on in X-Men history. I mean, yes, the Silver Age had already passed, but the Silver Age actually didn't have a ton of characters. And so in the 70s, when the all-new, all-different team came out, you know, most of the more straightforward mutant powers and mutant, mutant archetypes weren't taken yet. So you didn't have to get really, really complicated or vague with any of them. Yeah, they're all fairly straightforward, loose concept characters, which... I think goes a long way toward making them sustainable over time. Another anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, in the Marvel universe, mutants are not the only superhumans persecuted slash discriminated, including recently in humans and the classic non-passing Marvel mutates could or should the X-Men combat all non-baseline human discrimination in their movement, or perhaps form one umbrella of different groups with similar goals, like an MIX mutate and human X gene mutant community Okay, so I have complicated feelings about this, which are complicated in ways that are only roughly analogous to actual real-world activism, because you gotta bear in mind when you're looking at this some things like the fact that the Inhumans have powers because of millennia of eugenics and are not actually that discriminated against, I don't think. Um, The... X-Men, I think, have to a fair extent allied with and and functionally taken up the cause of, of, of mutates specifically, but mutates are also, mute, they're X-gene mutants who've been further subject to, to further genetic manipulation. In general, I think responsibility in this situation has to be mediated by capacity, that there are there's obvious value in alliances and there's obvious responsibility in extending a hand to other groups but ultimately the capacity to do that is going to be limited by struggles for survival and also when you're dealing with groups between whom there are are different types of of aggressions i mean you can it's it's one of the reasons that for instance um I, I'm speaking about a community that I'm part of, the LGBTQIA community is actually a lot of smaller intersecting communities that have been thrown together and whose interests often but not always align. And when they don't, that umbrella group and term can be really damaging to the more marginalized groups within it. So ultimately, I don't actually have a really concrete answer to this that basically sometimes and it depends and they should definitely maybe at least talk well said i have nothing to add and i should say also actually about the the intersection of of mutant and inhuman issues um magdalene visaggio covered covered that very very deftly in her dazzler one shot which i highly recommend dazzler x song yeah that was a really good one now jonathan elliott asks We've seen a return of so many classic elements of the X-Men in the last year, from original body Betsy to resurrections of key members to the school actually being a school in New York again. 
what classic element of all things X that's faded away would you like to see return? And what well-loved classic X trope must needs to wander off into the sunset? As far as what should come back, I feel almost like a broken record because I always have the same answer, and it keeps not happening. We need an X book specifically about a class of young mutants. We did t- we did have Christina Strain's Generation X. That was a really cool take on that with the special class, but I kind of want something that A, uh, lasts for longer, Marvel, because I want to get to know these younger mutants the way we got to know the new mutants. But the hard part is that We have lots and lots of young mutants from previous attempts at this type of story, so it's not really feasible to have the New Mutants again, or even the New Mutants Academy X again with all the characters it introduced, and focus on a whole new class, because if we did, this class would either just be a subset, like in Generation X, or they'd be overshadowed by all of the previous characters. So, first of all, I absolutely second everything Miles just said um, about that. I would add, though that something I'd really like to see that we really haven't had since M-Day, since since House of M, is mutant community and culture. I thought that was so cool when it started to be a growing thing, and it's something that I really miss. And in general, connected to that, the lives of mutants outside of superheroes. Good call, yeah. And actually, speaking of Dazzler X-Song, that one-shot touched on both of those things. But then she got pulled back in. Yeah, well, that happens. As far as what I'd like to see disappear, I'd like to see a less consistent core cast. Don't get me wrong, I love the original five, I love the all-new, all-different era team as much as anyone. I mean, you know, X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold were both fun for those reasons. But let's see what Claremont did back in some of the weirder eras of his run. Let's have new characters, and let's give a spotlight to older, more obscure characters in the core X-Books, not just in spin-off X-Books. You know, where's Banshee, where's Husk, or Surge, or Tempest, or even freaking Sage? Now, we do have a character that I think could work really well as a new standard, Trinary, or Trinary, as Tom Taylor says in his delightful accent, from X-Men Red. I'd love to see her as a core cast member going forward. There's a lot of potential there, but there are also a lot of old characters who have sort of been forgotten because they weren't the original core characters. You know, I, I would add to that in general... I'd like to see less in the way of reversions to previous statuses quo. Let the world and cast change and develop. Stop returning it to the fixed point for sales. But in connection to that too, and in connection to that development, what I would take away if I could take away one established thing is the X universe in general, or at least more titles in its reliance on and lockstep to an event-based publishing cycle. I think that it effectively, it, it, it limits storytelling options so much and it limits the kinds of stories we can tell. It, it limits the directions those can take. It limits obvious physical features like length and scope. And it just, it, it creates, it, it, it locks in that status quo in, in ways that I think really, really hurt the, the line as a narrative entity. All right, let's do one more. Red Gears asks on Tumblr, what were your expectations for the podcast when you first started? How have they changed over time? I can't speak for you, Miles, but I didn't really have any expectations for the podcast when it first started. I was completely new to the medium. I was way out of my depth, and um, I just kind of wanted to make it. Like, I, I didn't really have any sense of, of how it would exist as an independent entity or what it would grow into. And I, I don't think I really could have come up with any any clear expectations for it. And if I could have, they 
definitely, definitely wouldn't have been on the scale that it ended up. I'm right there with you on almost all of those fronts, except if I'm being perfectly honest, I crave approval, so I was really hoping a lot of people would listen to it. But for me, a lot of people was like 200, and um, there were more. Yeah, I think our threshold for absolute unprecedented success, I've mentioned this before, was if we could get 50 listeners, not counting our immediate families. And um, there are there are a lot more of you now. There are about 19,950 more of you now. Um, hi, we love you. One of the things that I absolutely could not have anticipated um, that's become really central to my priorities relative to the podcast and to my vision of it is the community that's grown around it. Like that's that's gone from something that was just sort of a byproduct of it to something that for me at least is really central to the development of the show and to, to really everything that goes into it and, and around it. Yeah, I mean, especially this year with the launch of our Discord channels, like, that's that's gotten huge. That's become really awesome. And I mean, I wish I had more time to spend in there. I'm going to do my best. That's my New Year's resolution. Well, you also weren't on IMSI, which was a really, really, really dynamic community. And that's, that's something that exists on Twitter when there's not a Discord and, and on Tumblr. And one of the things that, that Discord, I think, has done more than anything else it's, it's, it's built a lot of community. Folks have gotten to know each other and made connections, but it's also just kind of distilled and crystallized the number of folks who've connected regardless, you know, through comment sections, through other social media, even without really having a conversational home. And that's so amazing to me. And that's so cool. And God damn, if it doesn't fit the themes of X-Men perfectly, X-Men is all about found family. And that's happening more and more and more. And I think that's the best thing that could happen. That's the the purest distillation of, I don't know about the intention of X-Men, but certainly my strong interpretation of it. Yeah, I mean, the mutant revolution is 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 a really great place to hang out these days. <laughs> As for expectations changing going forward, I mean, honestly, for a while, I think our our, our greatest hope was just during some really hard times, making sure the show continued. And it did, and I feel like we're we're really finally on the other side of that now. And so as for what comes next, I mean, it's really it's really hard to say. I'm I'm excited to to find out. I mean, you talked about those hard times and the last the last couple of years of my life have been just such a massive and ongoing upheaval in so many ways that I feel like I'm really just now getting to a point where I can catch my breath enough to step back and look at developing more infrastructure around the podcast and stuff like that. Like, um, yeah, it, it, it's been, it's been a lot and picking back, picking those dropped balls back up, uh, finding new ways to, to carry and juggle them, um, is sort of, sort of my, what I'm looking at going forward in the most immediate future though. Um, we're, we're going to be headed to, um, Emerald city comic-con in a few months and hopefully we'll, we'll see you all there. Which sort of brings us to a good segue to we are we are an entirely listener supported podcast and we exist um, thanks to our our listeners and thanks to some other people but I want to mention the listeners first because I don't know of any other podcast the size of ours that doesn't run ads and this isn't this isn't a we are better than them but this is a we that that's the fact that we're able to keep doing this the way we do is testament to are phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal Patreon subscribers. You are the people who keep the show running, who keep it hosted, who keep 
us going on it, um, who keep us able to record ridiculous, monstrously large events like this and uh, conscript our friends into singing on them. And thank you so much. So in addition to our listeners, there are a lot of folks working behind the scenes without whom Jay and Miles explain the X-Men would not be possible and would never have been possible from the start. Um, you heard one of them on the air today, and that is David Wynn, our illustrator, who's been with the podcast pretty pretty close to the entire time um, and who makes us look amazingly good every week with, with his illustrations and is also just continues to be an absolute pleasure to work with. And yeah, without whom I don't think we would have grown into what we are. And while you didn't hear Matt Hunter's voice this episode, you have heard his digital fingerprints in every freaking second of it. Matt's been a producer for more than a year at this point, and it has been a stellar year. He's incredibly skilled, incredibly talented, and an incredibly good dude. Like, I'm just really happy we've also gotten the chance to, to get to know Matt. And so, Matt, thank you so much for all that you do. We know that this is a very time-consuming and challenging gig, and we so, so appreciate all of the work you do and how amazing that work is. Thank you. Um, also in that light, our our prior producers, Bobby, Kyle, and Kurt, um, the, the giants on whose shoulders we're, we're all currently standing. And also... I kind of want to give a shout out to our partners. We don't talk about them very much on the show, but Jay, your wife T and my partner Anna, they put up with so much nonsense as we just do X-Men, X-Men, X-Men stuff all the time. Yeah, uh, we're deeply ridiculous and we're both, we, 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 we can both vouch for how difficult we each are to live with, so. <laughs> <laughs> yup. Also, and specific to this episode, I want to thank all all the folks whose voices you can hear as as the ex-carolers. Matt Gardner and Peter Gresser of Floating Hand Studios, Aaron Pence, Steve Pence, and Tina Abate. And finally, thank you so much to everyone who's out there listening now, who's listened before, who's, you know, just picking the show up, who will be out there in the future picking the show up, you know, 20,000 20, years into, into, you know, a, a dark post-apocalyptic present. And at long last, with that. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by the wonderful Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and the lyrics to all of our ex-carols so that if you want to form your own group of renegade carolers, you can. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're taking our own holiday break. But we'll be back on January 13th with the second saddest story ever. We are so sorry. Bring tissues. Angel, we have heard his heart sweeping lazy through the air. and death were done, yet your soul passed on there. Whoa.